Welcome to the Energy Exchange Season 2, hosted by Internex, your go-to source for content on today's most relevant grid modernization topics that is concise and arms you with actionable intelligence. For more on this episode's topic, download your copy of The Brief, a consolidated document highlighting what you need to know and how you can take action today. Visit internext.com backslash the energy exchange for more. Hello, I'm Steve Rupp, Director of Consulting Services with Internex, and I'll be your host for this episode of the Energy Exchange. Today, we're discussing the success of California's Community Choice Aggregation Program, and we'll explore how community choice aggregators are managing the myriad of challenges and opportunities in the energy industry driven by California's move toward its clean energy future. My guest today is Girish Balachandran, the Chief Executive Officer of Silicon Valley Clean Energy. Silicon Valley Clean Energy serves over 270,000 customers across 17 southern San Francisco Bay Area communities. Garish brings to his organization more than 30 years of experience in the California energy industry and more than 10 years of senior and executive leadership experience in the municipal utilities in Palo Alto, Alameda, and Riverside, California. Garish, it's good to be with you, my friend, and thank you for making time to be on the Energy Exchange. My pleasure, Steve. Really looking forward to chatting with you. Let's start our conversation with a little overview of how the community choice aggregators came to be and and your view on how Silicon Valley Clean Energy is thriving. Great. So I'm so glad to be here. CCA is a community choice aggregation started as a solution to the first energy crisis we had in California. In that 2000-2001 period, we know we had a number of market players who manipulated the energy wholesale markets. We had extremely volatile prices, and many communities kind of realized they didn't have any control over energy prices, and they wanted to do something about it. So a law was passed that allowed communities to aggregate and buy directly from the market. So this is a little different than the previous model, which was retail direct access, which would allow individual customers to buy power from retail sellers directly from the wholesale market. That market didn't work. So communities decided, hey, we'd like to do this. The law got passed in 2002. Without getting into too much detail, it was not until 2010, eight years later, that we had the first CCA formed, and that was Marin Clean Energy. Subsequently, 2013 had the second CCA, and in 2016 and 2017, it exploded. And today, we have 19 operational CCAs in California. So basically, from 2016 to 18, in about a three-year period, we added another 16 CCAs. We started in 2017, and this is a model that's actually working. You know, there was quite a bit of skepticism as to whether CCAs uh, could survive. And uh, we have done quite well so far. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit more in this conversation. So you provide um, clean energy to the 270,000 or so customers that are, that are there in the Bay Area. Let us uh, hear a little bit from you about how you think you're really having an impact on the lives of your customers. Going back a little bit in history, we had a bunch of our cities. And our cities include the cities of Mountain View, Sunnyvale, Cupertino, Los Altos, right down to the southern end of our service area, 
which has Morgan Hill and Gilroy. And as many of our cities were looking at their climate action plans in the 2014 and 15 period, they needed more carbon-free electricity than what the incumbent provider was supplying. And the incumbent provider was specific gas and electric, PG&E. And so they were looking out for options that they could basically figure out their future and basically take control over their carbon emissions in the future. And so that's how they started RCCN. That's why they started RCCA. And when they incorporated and in their first kind of strategic planning efforts, and we continue to this day, we start to look at what do our communities want? What do our customers, what do our citizens want? And when it gets to your question about how do we make a change in the lives of our customers, we realize that, well, emissions is basically a public health issue. We are offering programs not just in clean electricity, where we're cleaning up electricity, but we're also looking at ways we can clean up transportation, reducing the use of gasoline and moving to electrifying transportation, and also looking at buildings and the use of natural gas and how over the next decade or so, we can move more of our buildings to use the electricity that we are supplying, which is 100% clean energy. So this is essentially making a difference in the lives of our customers. And we are doing this at a price point that's lower than what PG&E provides. So in addition to the public health benefits, the long-term benefits of supporting clean energy, there's also a bottom line benefit of us providing energy at prices lower than what PG&E provides. So clean energy at a lower price than what PG&E can provide it, that's got to be a, a, a good thing for the community, I would think. Internex, one of our areas of focus is, is grid modernization, and that leads into the ideas of grid resiliency and grid reliability. I'll share a quick story with you. Over the last six months or so, I've been subject to, I think, a total of four days of no power as a part of PG&E's public safety um, power shutoff programs. A lifelong engineer and, and being in the utility industry for a long time, I kind of understand the intent and the importance of focusing on public safety and maybe sometimes compromising reliability to be able to do so. But I, I really scratch my head about you know the long-term viability of a solution like that. And I know that some of your customers, fortunately not too many, were, were impacted by um, the public safety power shutoffs. So we know that the community choice aggregators have good control over the supply or the sources of electricity that the consumers use, but you still depend on PG&E for delivery of that supply. What can CCAs do about reliability and resiliency when someone else owns the energy delivery infrastructure? Steve, that's such a great question, and it's so current because it's something that is impacting our customers right now. And I can tell you that these PSPS events fundamentally changed how we view electricity. Just like the last 15 years, when you think about energy policy in California, and sometimes energy policy in the United States, we tend to look back at this energy crisis where in California and design policies based on that filter. We don't want that to happen again. Similarly, I believe the next 20 years are going to get influenced by these PSPS events. We're living in the fifth largest economy, basically, in the world, in California. 
and we have multiple day outages. It's not just a business loss, it's a reputation loss that I think is really going to change how we view the future and what electricity means to us. So in terms of what CCAs can do and what we're dealing with, the delivery of reliable energy, uh, like you indicated, since PG&E controls the delivery system, there's not much we can do in the short term, but I think there are some solutions, dramatic solutions for the long term that I'd like to talk about. But first, the short term solutions that we are looking at at Silicon Valley Clean Energy. First, we are looking at developing behind the meter solutions, and we're putting in millions of dollars. Actually, we put out a RFP just about six weeks ago asking for market solutions to install 10 megawatts of behind the meter storage in residential, commercial, and municipal facilities. We're also looking at how we can get some of that investment going into our low-income customers and apartment buildings, because those tend to be underserved communities and underserved infrastructure. So what we are looking at is working with uh, solar and energy storage providers so they can install these in homes and the value add that we're providing them is we'll provide them a revenue stream such that these resources can be bid into the California independent system operator market uh, for reliability purposes. So there's an added value and energy storage has multiple values and this would be an additional value that we'll be providing. From a customer standpoint, they'll be getting energy storage combined with solar at times at a lower cost because the supplier is going to be getting an additional revenue stream from us. We should be getting responses. Uh, literally, we are finalizing uh, the deadlines coming up uh, in the next week. And in the February timeframe, we should be able to announce uh, who we're going to be working with to get this energy storage behind the meter. In addition to this, we have also developed an options analysis on what we call a virtual power plant, such which allows for load shifting, uh, load reduction. We're looking at ways in which we can develop rates that could incent demand flexibility. So all these are ways in which we can add to resiliency. There are other CCAs who are also looking at microgrids. Uh, we are also involved in that. We are working with the CPUC such that the regulatory rules can be designed for us to have a part to play in the development of microgrids. I'll leave you with one last, maybe a, a big idea about how I think not just CCAs, but other market players can participate better to provide more resiliency. And that is the creation of what we call a distribution system operator, similar to the independent system operator that controls the transmission grid. We need someone controlling the distribution grid that doesn't have a vested interest in either overbuilding the electric grid or uh, turning off power in ways that don't meet customer needs. So we need someone, I believe, uh, that's a nonprofit entity 
whose goal is to maintain that grid in a very efficient uh, and cost-effective manner. It'll take us many, many years to create that distribution system operator, but I do think the resiliency of the distribution system will be improved if we have that kind of model uh, instituted in California. I think there's a place for PG&E, and there's quite a place for CCAs uh, to play a role. Sorry for the long answer. Well, it's a tough question. I wouldn't expect you to be able to address it in, uh, in, in 10 words or less. I think I'll ask you an off-track question here. You talked about the idea of a virtual power plant. Maybe spend a couple of minutes sharing with us uh, your, your vision of what a virtual power plant is. Yes, so the virtual power plant is a little bit of a term of art in terms of um, we have our traditional power plants, which are gas, coal, nuclear, or even solar. But a virtual power plant is essentially using data and integrating, in some cases, through the cloud, distributed resources across the system that once you aggregate it, can actually act like a power plant. So just imagine we have 10,000 energy storage units in our service territory, and you know each of them are providing four to six hours of storage. To the extent that we know the exact state of charge of all those 10,000, and we have visibility of all of them at one time, we can essentially aggregate when those batteries get charged, when they get discharged, so that they can serve multiple purposes. We talked about resiliency, where they can serve to provide electricity to the homeowner when the power is off. But they can also serve as a unit that's available to the independent system operator for reliability purposes, which is almost identical to what a power plant also provides in terms of contribution to reliability. And we know that the cost of batteries are going down. It's been going down every year since 2010. And just like how that solar cost curve came down uh, over the last 15 years, uh, where we can get solar at less than two cents a kilowatt hour today, the cost of batteries are going down. So we're going to have a lot more batteries. And so this is where the use of basically data analytics to aggregate these uh, small assets all over a service area that acts like a big power plant is a way of, that's a virtual power plant essentially. So it starts to look more like the sharing economy, you know, like Uber or something like that, where let's utilize these assets more effectively. Uh, so that's essentially what a virtual power plant is. And there are a number of ways you can do it. I explained uh, right now how you do it with battery storage. Uh, but we can also do it through pricing to the extent we can develop real-time pricing or peak day pricing. Uh, it's another way of manipulating demand such that we don't have to fire up, say, a gas power plant. We can basically reduce demand, and that essentially starts to look like a power plant. That's why we call it virtual power plant. Well, that's a very exciting idea, and uh, it'll be fun to to watch the industry evolve in that direction. Uh, I know we've heard for many years uh, a lot of great ideas about what we could do if we could aggregate 
demand response. And I think it makes sense the, to think about how we can also aggregate rooftop solar and we can aggregate energy storage to help accomplish our clean energy goals. Let's talk a little bit about the non-virtual power plant world. I'm conflicted. One morning I'll, I'll get up and I'll read my uh, my headlines uh, that, I, that I get through uh, various news sources and the message will be all about the latest deal for solar and storage that was cheaper than the last deal and indicating that, you know, makes you wonder where's the bottom of that market and, and how low can costs go. And certainly we're all excited about the idea of seeing, especially storage costs now, uh, continue to decline because it really makes um, our ambitious goals more viable. The next morning I'll get up though and I'll read articles uh, from another perspective that talks about how the renewable energy market is really tightening up and it's more and more difficult to uh, build solar and, and wind and storage due to a, a host of reasons, whether it's the con- concerns about recycling at the uh, end of life of the of the infrastructure or whether it's environmental or whether it's land constraints, but definitely conflicting stories. One day it's uh, the, the best deal ever and the next day we're not going to be able to build renewable. Tell us a little bit about what your take is on the market for renewable energy and, and where you think we're headed. Great question, Steve. We are actually right in the middle of this market where one of the things we have in terms of our mission is we have a 100% carbon-free mission. And today we are meeting that carbon-free goal through 50% carbon-free resources that are RPS eligible, which is the California label. California has its own label as to how it treats renewable resources. And the remaining 50% is carbon-free, which is typically coming from large hydroelectric. So for the green resources or RPS resources, we are seeing prices come down. We issued our first RFP end of 2017, along with Monterey Bay Community Power, and we signed three contracts, a nominal value of about a billion dollars over the life of the contract, two of them being solar storage and one being wind. We're in the middle of negotiations for our next tranche of renewable power, which is going to serve 20% of our long-term needs uh, using green, renewable, brand-new resources. And the prices have come down since the last contracts we've signed. Now, there are some market dynamics through tariffs and things like that, but everything we are seeing is that the long-term trend continues to push prices down quite a bit. On solar, you see news reports about solar-only contracts coming in at right around $0.02, maybe even a little less than $0.02. I can tell you that we are seeing those prices. And when you add in storage, we are getting to a little less than $0.03. So solar, solar plus storage, prices have come down. Uh, Wind is a little bit more expensive. Uh, However, the capacity factor is much better. And another very promising technology is offshore wind. Um, So as we get to a, we're looking at a long-term future where we want to have carbon-free, clean energy every hour of the day, we've got to find something that's working when the sun isn't shining. And so that's where wind and geothermal and other resources have to be part of that mix. Uh, but as far as prices go, I'm we're seeing uh, solar storage and uh, wind coming down quite a bit. 
Well, that's certainly a, a rosy outlook on the future, and, and I, I hope it comes to be that way. Uh, you mentioned the idea of offshore wind. I've spent uh, many a, an afternoon out in the San Francisco Bay in search of, of my favorite fish, and it's always windy out there. Is anyone looking at doing wind out in the bay, kind of that version of offshore wind? Yes, exactly. Uh, great question. And our coast is very well suited for offshore wind, and you've experienced it yourself while you're fishing. Uh, we have two projects that several CCAs are looking at. Uh, one is down off Monterey, and Monterey Bay Community Power is taking the lead on looking at some of the offshore wind resources off the coast there. And then we have uh, Redwood Coast Energy up in the northern part of Northern California, and they're looking at offshore wind also. Uh, so both those areas are currently being looked at. Prices as we see it right now, it's a little high, but we're still in communication with these suppliers. And we'll, we'll probably get into that uh, a little later in our conversation, but uh, that's definitely being looked at. Well, it'll be exciting to, to keep an eye on those developments. Let's turn our discussion uh, away from the supply side and more to the demand side of the equation a little bit. For quite a few years lately, utilities have been struggling with managing demand. And, and by that, I mean the traditional you know, 20-year-ago utility model really depended on or, or assumed that we were going to have kind of constant steady load growth over time. Sometimes in the 1% to 2% was kind of a a, a safe load growth that you could depend on, and then you would develop your resources and plan your infrastructure around that. In more recent years, we've definitely seen no load growth or what looks like declining load growth due primarily to our impacts that we're having with all the investments that we make in energy efficiency, and then also um, the behind-the-meter rooftop solar, which creates uh, a net load that is is declining or at least flat. What are your thoughts on where um, where demand is headed in the future? I know you talked a little bit about your plans for uh, electrifying transportation and some natural gas uses. Certainly, that might have an impact on demand. Great question, Steve. And this is something that, you know, over the last many years, uh, industry has definitely changed, right? So we used to think of uh, demand growing as basically it was a given. You know, you just kind of decide what that growth was going to be. And what we're seeing across the United States is a flattening of growth. But we are seeing some changes. And the way we're looking at it, uh, if we could divide it into maybe two timeframes, between now and 2030, we're going to see continued energy efficiency driving down demand. However, offsetting that is going to be EV growth and building electrification. So you, I, we are seeing very modest growth because the declines kind of being offset a little bit with these two growth factors. So through 2030, modest growth, what we are seeing and what we expect after 2030, the growth is going to increase. So the rate of growth is going to be increasing. And not only is the rate of growth going to be increasing, the shape, our load shape, our demand load shape is going to be changing. And that's because the more we have buildings electrified and the more we have EVs being part of our fleet, the demand patterns are changing. And so we're going to have a lot more winter peaks, and that's going to be a challenge given that 
a lot of our renewable investments, especially in solar, are peaking in summer during the day. And so you're going to have these peaks shifting uh, to the evening and also in winter. So modest growth through 2030 and then higher growth after 2030 with the complicating factor of the load shape changing. Well, you, you can't really have a conversation today, and at least in, in California or in the West, about supply and demand without mentioning the uh, the Cal ISO duck curve. I thought I'd get away with it. That's why I didn't have it in my notes to you. But you, you, know, you brought up the idea of load shape and, and how um, that's going to change. Do you see the load shape evolving in a way that sort of um, – um, alleviates or will it exacerbate the challenge that we're having now when solar tapers off and we have to have resources that can quickly ramp up in the in the early evening? I think it's a challenge, uh, but frankly, it's a very it's manageable. I think we have a lot of smart people in California. Uh, I think we have some super ambitious goals, but I, I do think uh, with some changes in policy and some changes in regulation, we're going to get there. There are going to be some problems with where the peak, how we deal with peak and reliability. We're already seeing that with the California Independent System Operator. You know, the most solar we have, solar is really not helping between the hours of 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And that's the peak right now. So the California Independent System Operator is worried about that peak. And now we are also looking at, uh, well, what about the very definition of reliability? We basically assumed, you know, all our models uh, in from an electrical engineering standpoint and a system planner standpoint, yep, we have a resource that's available 7 by 24 because it was a traditional power plant. All those definitions are changing. I think in the near term, and I say near term, maybe the next 5 to 10 years, we're going to have a bunch of battery storage come in to help with that 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. peak. But then the value, we're going to have so much supply of storage that that value, that's going to get solved, but it's going to create another problem, right? So it's like, what about that nighttime load? How are you going to meet that nighttime load, the more renewable resources you put on the system? And we're retiring gas units. Uh, so that's definitely a challenge. And we have a very ambitious goal of being a clean grid by the year 2045. And frankly, we don't have a technology path yet to figure that out. Now, 2045 is a ways away. So we have regulatory agencies literally working right now to figure out pathways. And those pathways not only include uh, a lot on the demand side, uh, but also looking at fuel diversity, looking at hydrogen also, as being a part of our future. Well, so your comments about depending on, on technologies that we don't really know about yet to help us get to where we want to be in 2045 leads me into my, my last uh, and wrap-up question for you. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, in our industry, um, regulatory uncertainty, environmental uncertainty, economic uncertainties, human uncertainties. I'm sure the list of things for you to worry about is plenty long. Share with us a little bit about what's keeping you up at night and, and what you're going to do about it. So keeping me up at night depends on the month of the year, Steve. Some months I'm up at night because we have certain compliance deadlines. But I'll say just stepping back, regulatory uncertainty in California is a real problem. 
Uh, I don't think the regulators have actually figured out strategically how they're going to regulate effectively. Not only has technology changed dramatically, and we can see more changes coming up in the future, but the very marketplace has changed. We talked about CCAs. We have 19 operational CCAs. We have the city of San Diego, one of the largest cities in California, that's going to be a CCA in the year 2021. San Diego Gas and Electric has basically supported that, and they'd like to get out of the supply business completely. The regulators really haven't embraced how they can work with these new entities that to, to meet state goals. I think they're getting there, but they're not there yet. Just in the last year, we've had a, another crisis in California, and that's with the investor-owned utility PG&E declaring bankruptcy. Uh, so when I think about the future, this is an opportunity for us to essentially restructure the roles of the investor-owned utilities. I think we all have a part to play in this business, and that's where I think the regulators need to get creative to actually enhance the strengths that each of us bring in. CCAs are quite large compared to many municipal utilities, but quite small compared to the large investor-owned utilities. I sometimes think that investor-owned utilities are too big to succeed. We are of a size that a community can actually have influence over our future. I think we bring in strengths where we can work the demand side of the equation. We have very close relationships with our customers, and we are able to adapt and respond to what our customers need. Combined with that strength that we have at the local and community level, I do think the regulatory framework for all of us in the state needs to be much more creative so they can leverage the strengths we have. So T&D, what's the future of transmission and distribution look like? Does it still make sense to have a utility owning 80,000 miles of transmission and distribution? Or should we make it a little bit more manageable? Should we have a future where a monopoly service gets 10 to 16% return on investment? Or should we look at more of a public benefit kind of corporation that's nonprofit and is more responsive to its customers? Should we look at a future which has data and information be kept secret, which is how investor-owned utilities work now? Or should we have more transparency? I think there are a lot of opportunities, and especially when we're looking at a future, Steve, where, like you started your question off, where there's some technologies that haven't even been created yet to meet these very ambitious decarbonization goals. I actually, even though I've talked about many of these problems, I feel very optimistic being part of a CCA because we have, we're very aligned in our mission and that mission comes right from our board, our community, our employees and customers. Uh, so there's lots of excitement in our CCA world as to the kind of difference we can make right at the customer level. And we're really looking forward to engaging at the state level to, uh, to align regulation to make us all a success. 
Well, I know that uh, five or six years ago, when when folks like me were deep in the in the study phase and, and helping communities that were looking at whether or not they wanted to take on the challenges of being a community choice aggregator, we would lay out for them, I think, a very re- realistic view of the potential risks and rewards of, of moving forward in that space. And like many new things at that time, it was the risks that really got your attention. And I think while some communities like Marin and, and, and your, your communities embraced the idea and, and charged ahead, I think there's others that are close to making the decision to move forward, and some haven't really begun to think about it. We're at 19 community choice aggregators uh, today. What are your thoughts on where we're headed in the next five years in terms of the number of Californians that will get to experience what your customers do? Great framing, Steve, from where we were five or six years ago, where there was lots of skepticism about the CCA business model. Uh, I think we have crossed the tipping point and uh, we have credibility. Uh, We have credibility in financial markets. We will be meeting with Moody's just in a few weeks and uh, requesting a bond rating. Uh, It takes three years of audited financial statements before we can get there. We have one CCA that already has two bond ratings, and you're going to see in the next few years that financial credibility, basically, you're gonna get a bunch of CCAs with bond ratings. We already have suppliers who want to do business with us. Uh, They believe in our business model, and these are folks who've been working with us from 2016 onwards. So I think some of the early adopters like Marin and then folks who followed very quickly afterwards like us, uh, we've crossed the tipping point, I think, in five years from now. I'll give you two things. I'll say my hope is that we will have more of the energy supply and procurement side uh, handled by communities and that reflect community priorities. I think the next Six months to a year are going to be critical in terms of some restructuring of the market. Uh, But CCAs are here to stay. You know, whether we are super successful in all areas, both power, you know, from power supply to transportation, electrification or building decarbonization, uh, we'll continue to work with the regulators to smooth the road, so to speak. But it's looking it's looking quite good for us. Well, I will tell you, while it was easy to lay out the risks and rewards for community choice aggregation formulation plans, uh, one of the key ingredients was always the idea of of finding the effective leadership with the right combination of experience and passion to be able to make these things successful. And it's clear that Silicon Valley Clean Energy has found that with you. So congratulations, and it'll um, it'll be fun to watch you continue to succeed and, and move your organization forward. I very much appreciate you taking time out of your, your ridiculously busy schedule to spend some time with us. To the listeners, if you want more in- information on this topic, be sure to visit the internex.com backslash the energy exchange website, and you can download a two-page brief that will provide some concise and actionable intelligence on this topic and give you some more information about uh, new utility business models like that, which Silicon Valley Clean Energy is, is implementing. Thanks again, Garish, and thank you listeners for joining us. Thank you. 
For more on this and other relevant grid modernization topics, visit internext.com backslash the energy exchange. Internex, a Chessy company, is an electric power engineering consulting and research firm focused on advancing a cleaner, smarter energy system of the future.